The podcast today concerns a lot of topics that really, really interest me, but which in my role as like critic and analyzer of the space more than say active participant, it's really hard to get a read on. As is probably abundantly clear if you listen to this podcast or if you know me at all, I'm no artist and I'm no curator either, but it helps to be one or both if you're going to have a real educated opinion on this strange, sudden new paradigm for crypto art where its relationship to the greater art world is being kind of poked and prodded and questioned en masse, casually, and in a lot of different places at once. As you'll hear on the podcast, a lot of people are starting to be quite frank with their opinion that, well, there is no difference between the quote-unquote traditional art world and crypto art. They argue that the schism is artificial and that it's damaging, but to my knowledge, few have adequately analyzed where that mentality seems to have come from. From the outside, as in the traditional art world separating itself from crypto art, internally, as in this space drawing a barrier between itself and the outside world, nobody seems certain. And it's kind of weird that it's even taken so long for this conversation to even trickle out into the public discourse, being that it seems to me so integral to how crypto art continues to evolve. I'm fascinated by the subject, obviously, and I'm hell-bent on trying to understand it, so expect versions of this conversation or different ways of asking this question to come in the future. Today, though, I have a really great guest who provides all of us a really important place to start. That would be Clay Devlin, an artist and curator and friend who has been, in his own words, observing crypto art since 2019. Now, in conjunction with Subjective.art and the Loom Studio in Manhattan, is inventing new ways for the crypto art world and the general art-loving public to interface with each other about the art in spaces where art is art is art, no matter the medium, message, or distribution mechanism. We talk about Clay's curatorial experience, the challenges and delights of bringing two worlds together that are not nearly as disparate as they seem, and the evolution of this schism to attitude in crypto art, as well as, of course, much, much more. So please enjoy my conversation with Clay Devlin on this week's Mocha Live podcast. Good evening, everybody. It is 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time here in beautiful Brooklyn, New York, where it is already dark, and boy, is that dismaying. My name is Max Cohen. I'd like to welcome everyone to the Mocha Live podcast. On the podcast, joining me today as uh, our special guest, the curator and creative director at Subjective.art and artist, wearer of many hats, self-proclaimed wearer of many hats, Clay Devlin. Clay, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. How's it going, Max? I'm happy to be here. I was just telling Max, everybody, that Mocha Live was my number one uh, Spotify rap podcast today. So <laughs> this is good timing. Yeah, that's an absolutely ridiculous thing. I don't <laughs> honestly think we have enough podcasts for <laughs> I think I had like 7,000 minutes of podcasts listened to, and it was all like football and basketball related podcasts. So my life outside of here has <laughs> nothing to do with art. <laughs> it's like I need to sterilize myself from artistry so i just listen to people talk about like football anyways so clay i really wanted to have you on this week it was really exciting to have you on this week um for a host of reasons i mean we've known each other for quite a while i really love like how you think and your perspective on things but um somebody on twitter named artist ken was responding to uh the podcast that colborne and i recorded earlier this week about rafiq anadol and jerry saltz's like twitter beef 
And one of the things that Colborn and I had talked about was this idea that crypto art at large and crypto artists within crypto art feel this need to like prove our own legitimacy by like achieving this like mainstream affection. And um, artist Ken said, quote, when that about like when that criticism comes from outside, when art criticism comes from outside crypto art, like there is no outside. There is only one art world and crypto slash Web3 slash NFTs are part of it. There is no difference. Neither tools or the medium or the ethos can or should separate art from itself. Regardless of the currently trendy mindset, they are somehow separate. All sides need to accept how it's, it, it's how it is. And I think that you're a perfect person to launch into this kind of a conversation with because I mean, you work at this kind of intersection, even more than most of us at like where digital and physical kind of meet. I mean, like I, I introduced you as you work at subjective.art, which uh, operates a lot out of Loom Gallery in Manhattan. And I've been to these physical exhibitions that you've put on at Loom where the line between like traditional and crypto art is not, is purposefully not delineated, right? I remember the first time I was there at NFT NYC, there was an exhibition that had um, artists like Almendra Bertoni with these like intricate physical frames, she also you know, creates her work as NFTs and Alec and Jack Busher and Thomas Stokes and Rocket Girl and all these artists who have this kind of dual practice of physical and digital um, minted work. And, and I was there for an Una performance piece and Una is wonderful at kind of mixing this world of like digital and physical and like probing that line and playing with that line and, and drawing new elements out of that line. So anyways, I have questions for you. So I thought we could start by kind of going back to this quote from Artist Ken or this idea from Artist Ken. So how do we incentivize like more crypto art focused people to see themselves as like a part of the larger artistic continuum? Yeah, I think it's inherent and like we just need like a broad realization of that because like art has always been art. It's evolved over the history of humanity and we're in our current evolution right now using these new tools, but the communication of feeling to like a receiving of feeling from artwork between people is completely the same. Um, and we're doing it online now and somehow communicating these things without words, sometimes with words, there's great poets using the blockchain as well, but um, just art is touching people um, and continuing to, um, but it's, it's just a different infrastructure that we're operating on. And I think the, you know, there's the delineation between the traditional art world and the crypto art world that either exists or doesn't, but uh, feels like it exists yeah. a lot of the time. Um, people vying for acceptance in the traditional art world or traditional artists trying to enter into the crypto art world. But um, at the end of the day, it's, it's all art and it's all part of the same conversation. Yeah. So I want your opinion on why, especially because you have this kind of dual role, you're curating and ex exhibiting, but you're also making art that is, again, towing this line or, you know, completely crossing the line between physical and digital. But I want to know, like, why you think there's this reticence on both sides, to, like marry the two, to see each other as just facets of the same thing. For my part, I think it's somewhat generational. I think it's like this weird millennial mindset um that i feel even in myself as i like you know go to a cocktail party and someone asks me what i do and i'm like oh i'm a writer and they say who do you write for and i say oh you know it's this you know digital art museum and they say oh is that nfts and you kind of feel this need to like prove yourself say like no no no, like i know what you think but this thing is legitimate and you kind of feel the need to like argue your own legitimacy even though 
I think we all understand the amount of work we do, the amount of communication we do, the like legacy that's happening here. It's as legitimate as anything else, but um, I ho hopefully that doesn't influence your answer as much. But like, w why do you think that there is this maybe like starting within crypto art, this place where we're both sequestered in, but like why this reticence to feel ourselves like a part of this larger artistic world? Like, what are we missing? What do we think we're missing? Yeah, I, I, I felt that in ways too, like talking to people in the traditional art world and like speaking about um, being involved with NFTs and crypto art. Um, and there, there is like a feeling that you need to justify it in a way because you don't know it's, it's become taboo in some, for some people over the last couple of years. I mean, it has gained broader acceptance in a lot of ways, but um, some people still have the perception of like the art that's representative of this movement that was fed to them through like mainstream media, like board apes and people and um, you know, whatever you may think of them. Uh, there's so much more happening here that, you know, if you just have those as reference points, um, I don't know. I don't know what you're going to think of this movement as a whole. Um, well, you may not even know that there's a movement here, right? You may be like, yeah. you're only seeing the topmost um, individuals. The yeah. top, not topmost, but like, you know, the most prominent, I suppose, are notorious individuals. Like they're, yeah, they like obscure everything below the surface. When you host like an exhibition um, through Subjective or at Loom, and you're having these kind of like mixed worlds of crypto art people and non-crypto art people, I mean, what is the, is there just like clean and easy interaction between them? Um, or is there still that kind of underlying need for like party A to prove themselves to party B. I don't, I don't really feel that at the shows. Um, like once you put people in a room with art, that's like curated in conversation with each other, regardless of medium, I think people just feel like they're at an art show rather than like, feel like you're trying to sell them some, I don't know, like whatever the perception is of NFTs. Um, I don't know. I think it's easy to like see that, clashing but it's still just an art show in new york city that people that's one of the big things that people do here is like go see new art and um you know people i think are comfortable with digital art at this point and accepting of it and like seeing the value that they can receive from interacting with it mm -hmm. um so yeah a lot, a lot of what we're doing is just presenting digital art and um, a lot of these galleries and museums do as well so um yeah the crypto isn't in like all caps when yeah. you walk in if that makes sense totally um it's more just like come see, see some art meet some of the artists and just see how it makes you feel i guess so then could it be a twitter problem i mean there's a million problems that are engendered and continued because everything in this movement seems to happen on twitter but part of the Twitter experience is being siloed in these echo chambers. So if all these crypto art people are only talking to crypto art people, only engaging crypto art people, only seeing other crypto art and are not, you know, when a Jerry Saltz figure comes in, there's this enormous like vitriolic backlash to whatever point that he's trying to make, whether that's fair or not, I'm not going to say, but like, could that be part of the reason that like the, you know, because you're talking about these exhibitions and you're like, yeah, people are just here to see art. They don't care what the art looks like. They're just here to see art. And it makes so much sense to me that you'd get people in a single physical location. And of course, they're not concerned about like 
what the back end of the art is, how it's being distributed. They're just looking at the aesthetics and appreciating the aesthetics. But of course, on Twitter, you can't unmarry the fact that, you know, I have X amount of followers and they're all people in crypto art. And when I blast out this podcast or a newsletter, it's all going to people who are in crypto art and are not, you know, maybe aware. They're not going to all these shows of not crypto artists and they're not engaging with those critics and that, you know, think tank of sorts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it is an echo chamber of sorts for sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. We, we definitely have this like platform problem right now, I think across the board, um, just like, like fragmentation of like where people are interacting with art and like connecting with each other. Um, and I'm interested to see where like the, these decentralized alternatives go. Cause I, I do think that is a bright future of social media that could be a lot better than what we're working with now with meta and Twitter and, and TikTok. But, you know, there are traditional art people on Twitter. I'd say that's more of an Instagram crowd, but um, I think it's just important to interface with like the public as a whole, just like coming from a perspective of like sharing new exciting artists and um, whatever like economic rails those are on. Yeah, it's it's tough to say. I don't know. Um, well, how do you feel like in this role as a, a curator and, and, and exhibitionist? I know that that's not, <laughs> you know, what would you even call exhibitor? Anyways, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But like, we, it's a vaunted position, right? I, everyone is constantly talking about the need for more curators, right? And you're actually doing that kind of work and you're doing that work, especially in a sense that brings together the crypto art and the non-crypto art worlds, right? In a place where they touch. Like, do you feel an added weight on your shoulders to accomplish certain things or communicate certain things when you're putting on or putting together these exhibitions because of how, I guess, like vaunted your station is? Um, I, de I definitely feel like an importance in the work that I do. Um, and I, I feel very fortunate to be here at Loom and met the owner, uh, Dotan Negrin, who we've been building Subjective together since January. Um, so it's about a, a year into this project. Um, and I, I do think we have like a big opportunity to be a bridge between like the traditional art world that exists here in New York and has a lot of power and influence and um, the crypto art world that's like what we're all trying to build into, you know, something that exists alongside the like history of art in, in the whole world. Um, and like we're here in Tribeca, which is sort of the new gallery district in New York. There's like got like Pace Gallery next door and PPOW and Jeffrey Deitch and all these big galleries in the neighborhood. Um, and there's no real presence of digital art there's some i mean there there is there's some people doing great work like bitforms and um and then there's like this more experiential side of things like art tech house and um like inter um in like they they show some cool work um i went to the rafik anadol show art tech house in 2019 but that like kind of ticketed experience uh is more in the vein of like a museum of ice cream or like these <laughs> yeah and it's uh i don't know you can present work there in good ways but uh reducing art to these ticketed experiences which 
I have no qualms with, but um, the great thing about a gallery is just the openness of uh, to just people being able to come and see the work. Um, but this year I've been fortunate to have a lot of creative freedom with the shows we've created. Um, the goal hasn't quite been to like sell the most work or anything. Like we've shown a lot of unminted work. Um, it's more been just building community and sort of uh, creating a space for these artists to exist in the city and have these group shows um, where there hasn't been that much of one in the past. And that goes for digital and physical artists that are kind of tied into this movement. Like I moved to the city and most of my friends were artists that I met on Twitter before I got here. Um, I don't know, we're all like nodes in this network and this place has become a hub for a lot of us. Um, so yeah, I definitely feel an importance in the work that I do. And next year, definitely working to create more relationships with collectors and try to build up that side of things and making this a sustainable art, like art gallery in a lot of ways. Yeah. So I don't want to, I'm not, this is not about you or Lou, but I don't want to like shit on people unnecessarily, mm -hmm. but at NFT NYC last year, I had a really um, disappointing experience at the super rare gallery, uh, which I believe was in Soho. I don't remember if it was this past NFT NYC or the one beforehand, but they super rare had like opened a gallery space and it was just mm -hmm. so uncreative in how everything was put together. It was just screens um, the works did not really have anything thematically to do with each other. There was a really cool like Osanachi, like it was a, um, a wall of infinite objects, all with a different Osanachi across the face on it. Love that. But otherwise it was like, yeah. there's a piece by Sam Spratt. There's a piece by, um, I think there was a Coldy. There was a, an alien queen and the pieces mm -hmm. were completely disconnected. There was no context between them. It was just like, here's right. an NFT. Like here's an NFT. Oh, here's another NFT. Yeah. All like in different parts of the 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 gallery. And I don't think it was meant to be an exhibition as much as it was meant to be like a gallery space. But I thought it was a monumental failure. Um, and just uh, it, it was a really kind of disappointing way to place all these really talented, wonderful artists together um, without having a link between them. So mm -hmm. you are obviously not in the business of doing that. And the exhibitions I've seen that you've put on at Loom, whether that's like the multi-story ones um, or the multi-story exhibit you had at NFT NYC or the um, Look, Touch, Own Una exhibition. It was a lot more thoughtful and curated and there was a, a vibe and even coming down to like the color scheme and the music that was being played, like there was an intention there. And I'm curious, like in your opinion, how do you discern what makes a good IRL exhibition and like what are the components of an effective exhibition and does that change when crypto art is involved? Yeah, I think... Um like super rare and spaces like that. I went to FWB Fest uh, in Idlewild a couple months ago and they had a little gallery curated by OpenSea. And when you have these platforms curating, it inevitably becomes kind of just the top selling artists on the platforms um, in, in a lot of cases. And that's really limiting. Um, and I'm very fortunate to have the freedom here to just bring in work that I believe in. And each show is definitely a different vision. Um, and like intentionally so, it, it sort of depends what the event is. Like NFT NYC, um, it felt important to showcase a lot of the local community as well, just like artists engaging with NFTs in New York City. So for that show, I, I think you saw the fourth and third floors. Those were the ones I curated. Um, There's a lot of physical work. Um, and then we had some screens with some digital work. We did an open call for that, which is the first open call curation I've done. 
um, which was a lot of fun and some great submissions. Um, and just trying to find of the moment work that people are, who are passionate in this space are creating and putting it in the same room, I think. I mean, there's other shows that have had more intentional themes like uh, Recursive Reflections, which we did during Freeze, uh, Freeze Art Week in May, which was focused on artists who've been engaging with AI in their practice in different ways. Um, and with something like that, it's fun because you can show the vast variety with a single through line, but all these artists work are completely different, showing like Jennifer and Kevin McCoy's uh, landscape landscape series and stable diffusion that they uh, created earlier this year and Sasha Styles art blocks project um, we did a and it, it's fun doing it in a space like this because you can bring in other components that might be separate from the artwork but could add to the artwork uh, like Sasha's project uh, still moving had an interactive component so I had the idea to bring in a longtime dancer a friend of mine Camilla Arake. Um, and we had like a 15 minute dance performance um, with Sasha's spoken word over an interactive piece that she made with Nathaniel Stern. And that was a really special like moment in the evening and things, things like that, that you can throw in the mix. Like you mentioned the, the music and just um, trying to make a cohesive like feeling of the experience of being in the space and being with the work and um we do a lot of performances as well. Like the live code community here in New York, it's like some of the, some of the most amazing like artists engaging with technology, but they're completely separated from the NFT space. Some of them are engaged with it, but it's performance-based coding, like visuals mm -hmm. and audio. Um, and I feel like that's important to exist in a space alongside the work that we're doing. Do you need to have like a really comprehensive through line for these works, not these works, these exhibitions that you're like communicating? Like when people walk in the door, there's like a, an explication of what they're seeing and why it's connected? Or is it more like, can you be successful in just kind of like letting that be kind of background and letting people stumble upon it themselves? I think it can be both. I do like making it apparent when you walk in sometimes, like at the Recursive Reflection show, as soon as you walked in, there was... A, like a large scale screen before you got into the projection room um, with a piece by Stephanie Dinkins, um, who I'm not sure if she's made any NFTs, but she's an incredible, incredible digital artist. It was a video piece of her speaking with Bina48, who's a like humanoid robot that's been evolving since like 2010. Um, and her and Sasha have both had relationships with this robot, teaching it, um, teaching about art and poetry and, um, so it was like a video of her speaking to the AI um, robot about like what it is and the robots it, telling her very eloquently, I can't quote it directly, but you can look up Stephanie Dinkins' conversation with Bina48 um, that just like, I'm the, I'm the real deal. Like I'm a reflection of all humanity is, has done so far. Um, and the show is called Recursive Reflections because it's like a mirror for humanity and I'll be a, a flawed mirror because the data is complete <laughs> and can't represent everything we are. Um, but that like felt like a hard introduction to just like make people think about like where, where, where is AI going to go and um, what are these artists saying with the, the ways they're interacting with it, I guess. 
what, what you're talking about is very interesting because it hits on something that I have been thinking about for a long time and don't really have an answer on, which is the art versus the display, right? And when you have not just an artwork, but a creative way of displaying it, like what you had done with your dancer um, friend in this performance kind of coinciding with the Sasha Styles work, like that is both the work, but also an evolution of the work because it includes this different, uh, obviously like performance is not display per se, but we can see one as the evolution of the other, or at least as like, I guess, I don't know, maybe there is no difference. Maybe performance is just another kind of display, but like how important both to you as this, as a curator, but also like to audience interaction or audience um, feedback, do you see of like just the artistry itself versus these display mechanisms? I mean, you mentioned the Rafik and it all the ticketed thing at our tech house. I also went to that some years ago and I was kind of blown away, but it, I'm not sure in hindsight if that was as much because Rafik's work was what was blowing me away or because it was this, you know, these projectors just shooting projections from every corner of the room and like all this movement and, you know, being kind of encapsulated in that because, you know, the projectors aren't discerning where a person stops and like the wall begins, um, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I guess I'm just curious about your opinion on this, like display versus aesthetics how intermingled they are, how important one is versus the other. And I think, I think they're both very important, but, um, you know, aesthetics can make a bad display, uh, feel good. Yeah. Um, but a good display can do a lot for work with good aesthetics as well. Um, I think like we're fortunate here to have the like projection space where we can do like full 360 projection mapping as well as a screen gallery and for physical art space to hang that. Um, so it's, that's definitely, the display is always in mind when curating the work. Cause in a, in a space where you're surrounded by the artwork on all sides, um, I've found that like audiovisual work fits that really well. Mm -hmm. It's it has a, an immersion to it. You're, you're hearing it, you're seeing it all around you. Um, and you just kind of have to sit there and take it in. You don't really have any other option. I mean, you can leave the room if you don't like <laughs> sure. it. But, uh, yeah, I think. I don't know, different spaces have different displays to to work with. I did a show independently in a church basement earlier this year um, in Bushwick. And that was one of my favorite shows I've done. I'm like, I'm a big fan of shows in non-traditional venues. Um, and that was fun because we showed a lot of physical work in this like classroom with like a whiteboard. So everyone was drawing on the whiteboard. It felt very interactive and people were taking the work, but there's also this wall of like old CRTVs uh, and showed, showed some work by like emotional and uh, squibs and some of my work and um, just a bunch of local uh, crypto artists in New York. And those TVs obviously way lower quality than the ones that we work with here, but something about seeing the work in that context added a lot too. So it's, it's tough to say they're both, they're both important, but um, I think there's interesting things you can do with displays that might feel like they're not the, the cutting edge of whatever that technology is today. So is the implication then that certain artists are, their work is better equipped for exhibition in certain spaces and that the space itself is going to, in some ways, pre-select what artists are, whose works most like effectively vibe with the physical location. Cause obviously we miss that in anything online because all these platforms 
display everything exactly the same. Um, and that's no shade to the foundations and super rares and um, known origins makers places of the world, but like they all display things exactly the same. Here's your box with the art in it. Here's your description. Here's your history and your, you know, transactions if you'd like to see those, but that's it. And it's generally on like a white background and it's generally like, you know, here's the frame, here's where the art is. There's no con context. It's just, maybe it's by necessity or by the necessity of like the economic realities of hosting a platform. But anyways, I'm just um, diluting my question, <laughs> which hopefully you remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's about the spaces and how that dictates like what is curated. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think that that is a factor. I mean, spaces have certain screens with certain dimensions or certain projectors. Um, and like back to the projection, like in a space like that, movement movement and sound add a lot to the experience of being in that room so that definitely comes into play when thinking about what what to show but at the same time like uh, a lot of work can be fit into a like 60 by 9 screen or um just like a it's it's not that limiting in that sense but for certain displays i'd say it can be like the where Rafik's work was displayed in the MoMA. I don't know if they're going to keep that up. Um, I hope so. I'd love to keep seeing more video work um, there, but I can't imagine they'd display a still uh, piece of digital art on that screen. Right? I'd, love to, I'd love to see more slow art in places like that. Like one of my, uh, I've talked about this before, but one of my favorite pieces of crypto art period is um, Daim Al Yad's Ancestral Memories, which is this like very slowly unfolding. It's like this face that is changing but it only changes once every like 45 seconds or so and not very gregariously until mm -hmm. it, you know, completely morphs over the course of like six minutes or so. And like, it forces you to like sit and contemplate the work for a lot longer than I think like a Rafik piece where you can, you kind of get it. Um, yeah. It's con it's constantly moving and it's constantly changing. So even if you like look away for however long, like you're going to come back and it's going to kind of bear vague resemblance to what it did before. But like you were talking about the um, the old TVs, right, in this church basement. That, mm -hmm. of course, makes me think of Sarah Zucker, right, whose work with analog video has to be shown on a screen like that or you would lose something. It would almost seem too – I would think it would almost seem too technologically advanced in the display and you lose some, like the physical texture of that artwork, which mm -hmm. is so important to be captured on these like – I mean it's created using these like old TVs, these old analog devices, but – I don't know. I just, I find it fascinating, um, especially because there's this race to invent just new technology, like better screens, crisper, the crisper actual vi visuals and, you know, incorporate more graphics cards. Um, and, you know, the more that, like, like, again, not to keep mentioning Rafik N at all, but like those pieces can't really be shown on, they can't really be appreciated on like small, like on, spectacular screens because they require so much computing power to like really get like the full expression of them let's uh change subjects quickly so i don't keep talking about rafikan at all send me um, that send me that piece you mentioned though this the slow art i i agree with you there it's there's a lot of really good slow like video uh video art that ha hasn't really found a space in the market in crypto art well it, i mean it can't if it's uh, if we're talking about twitter like of course yeah, it can't because like, nobody's looking at like even when, when i look at like the yeah. yeah the viewership metrics for these podcasts right when twitter tells me how many viewers we had during it it's like how twitter defines a viewer is somebody who watches a video for more than two seconds i'm like if this piece of art is going to evolve over six minutes like no one on twitter is going to watch that 
nobody because it's just not what you're the it breaks from your expectations of the medium and that's something like why i think so much like of this like new wave like manic glitch art um a la x copy has become mm -hmm. so prominent because it's perfect for yeah, social media right it's the experience we're all having exactly know? so what is your opinion on the role of the curator or gallerist in crypto art and not just I, I know we've kind of been slowly discussing that, but as we've kind of started with this idea that there's some kind of like hostility between the traditional quote unquote, traditional art world and quote unquote crypto art, there's always this hostility. I mean, it's this like weirdly entangled hostility and then like craving for like these middlemen essentially. Right. Which is uh, without wanting to sound pejorative, like that's what the gallerist is. Right or the curator is right. It is neither the, it's not the creator of the art and it's not the buyer of the art or the owner of the art. It's like this kind of middle ground. And obviously in crypto art, there's so much ingrained vitriol towards anything middle manny, right? So like at this point in time, what is your idea about like the importance of the role of the curator or gallerist at large in crypto art? Yeah, I think it goes back to like the echo chamber you were talking about before that we kind of are in. Um, and I think curators have an opportunity to help artists break out of that and contextualize their work alongside others, either, either in the space or not. And I think I really enjoy bringing in work that's not, not yet in, interfacing with the crypto art world and putting it in the same conversation as crypto art just to, because, you know, it's good work and uh, it should be in conversation with one another. Um, and I think a lot of the community that has come to our shows here, a lot of it is the digital art community, but a lot of it is people that are separate from that, either in the traditional art world or other walks of life. And just getting to experience that art is that inherently valuable, I think. And um, I'm lucky as a curator to be able to put things in context and maybe make a video piece or a, any any digital art piece have more meaning thanks to the context that it's put in hopefully um mm -hmm. but you know some of these works stand on their own obviously but um i think you can tell more of a story however however clear the story is or or not i think it's fun for it to not be clear sometimes um mm -hmm. and if there is a through line and for people to have to like figure that out like why are all these works in the same room together um mm -hmm. and obviously like you write a little bit about the show, a little curator statement, but it's something for people to grapple with and just like think about what they're experiencing rather than just like scrolling and be like, oh, that's cool. It, I think it can give you a lot more as a experiencer of the art. So how do, how do more people who are interested in curating get connected to a space where like an IRL exhibition can actually come together? Because to, I mean, maybe there is no solid answer, but like, that's obviously an insanely limiting factor to like the number and specificity of exhibitions that we can collectively pull off is like, where are these spaces who are going to be uh, these individuals who like own a gallery space who are interested in crypto art? How do we reach out to these people? My fear being that if we don't do this, then it'll just be, you know, whoever is wealthiest and most connected, the Sotheby's, the Christie's, the MoMA's who have the spaces, who have the funds to put together a giant video exhibition. It'll be those folks who are dominating the like exhibition landscape and all the artists who are there like 
chosen emissaries are going to further calcify, and I don't want that. I don't know. I Like I said, I got very lucky. I had my work curated here a few times last year, and I got to know uh, Dotan, the owner, and um, he's been wanting to do stuff like this for a long time, and I was kind of bumping him, like, you got to do more art shows here because it's, it's a great space for it. Um, and eventually he was just like, let's do it. And uh, in January we started putting on at least one or two shows a month. And I, I recognize how like lucky that is. I was just walking, walking dogs and doing commissions, <laughs> trying to live in this expensive city. <laughs> this goddamn place. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I really stumbled into it. I had never curated anything before, but I've been involved in this space since 20, 2018, 2019, just as an observer um, and just seeing like what's happening here. So I feel like I was prepared for the opportunity, but I definitely stumbled into it. As for people that would like to curate shows, um, I'd recommend reaching out to the spaces in your area. Just start meeting people who work with galleries or if there are digital art spaces, which are far and few between. But um, just be an active member of the community there and get to know people. But in terms of online, I would just get an on-cyber space or a or mocha room maybe and curate, uh, you know, just put your vision out there, um, put all those works in the same space and see how they feel together, invite people to come see how they feel in the space and um, reach out. Like um, my DMs are open if you got a cool idea for a show like i'd just be happy to look at it um can't promise anything but probably a, a good time to mention that if you do want to curate a mocha room you can use anything like it's it, it's programmed into each room and we have free ones available um Ooh, at, at the playground on. yeah on the app.museumofcryptoart.com just click around but um every piece from all of our collections including the community collection which i believe as of like two hours ago had nine thousand two hundred eighty-seven pieces in it so probably be able to find something to curate but quick plug for mocha rooms which we love shout out untitled xyz shout out renee schmidt our cto um okay so my last question is about your artistry just kind of like your general through line but i found this quote from your website, which I loved, which was my current work is inspired by feelings of unity derived from the idea that all apparently random systems in the natural world are governed by an obscured underlying order. Uh, and I just really connected with that. Uh, that's on coincidence.studio, uh, your website. Can you just talk a little bit about that, like in your art or just your curatorial strategy or just how you came to that? Yeah, I haven't updated my website in a couple of years, but I still like that. Um... That's, that's now outdated. You're like, I no longer yeah. believe that like we are governed no by a underlying order. order. <laughs> no, um, it, it remains. But a big inspiration for my work um, when I started taking it more seriously in college, um, I just got kind of obsessed with like chaos theory and fractals. And a big book that influenced me was Chaos, Making a New Science by James Cleek. And chaos theory is, we'll see, I haven't read the book in a while. Hopefully I can explain it well. But um Essentially, um, it's a multidisciplinary, like scientific field and uh, and mathematical field, studying uh, apparently random systems. Like think of the you pour your milk in your coffee that the way it all swirls together, just very chaotic. You can never predict exactly what it's going to look like. But the idea that there's very simple like rules of recursion and um, a sensitive dependence on the initial conditions of the system. 
when it starts that kind of play out um, as the system evolves. Um, and uh, fractals are a visual or kind of representation of this. Um, and it, that's been a big part of my work, especially my paintings. A lot of them, you can see geometric shapes or other like things that have rendered by my hand that are self-referencing at not an infinite scale, but a suggestion of an infinite scale. Like this gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And I mean, that's like the world we live in. Like we have the macro and the macro universe, the micro, and it's a big, big world that we're living this life in. Um, and I'll take it. Yeah. Right. And it feels uh, chaotic in a lot of ways at times. It's a, a lot of, a lot of terrible shit happening. I don't know how to say that, um, shit happening in the world. And, um, that's like sparks makes you feel chaotic, whether in your mind or what, and, um, thinking about these, um, systems in that govern nature. I think that bleeds over into human interaction and, um, this whole world that we're building, everything's happening as it's meant to, um, everything's playing out. Yeah, I don't know if I explained that well. No, you you did. I mean, uh, just a couple of things. One, so I was in Japan for a couple of weeks and I was in this tiny, not tiny, but I was in this like kind of off the beaten path city that not like, I, I don't feel is like super touristy, um, Nagano City. And it was late and I was just like looking for a place to eat. And I walked into some random Chinese food restaurant. And of course, there was <laughs> somebody I knew um, yeah. from home. And it's like, it just... The, I, I yeah. kept thinking, I was like, this is statistically impossible. Like there, like this is actually an impossible occurrence right. just happened just on the yeah. topic of like seemingly chaotic events with some kind of weird system. But you were talking about the milk yeah. um, and the coffee thing. And that, for me, that's like, so I love Dunkin' Donuts. I was living in Boston for 10 years. I'm just like a full Dunkin' Donuts apologist. Um, but Dunkin' always does their, the milk for you in like iced coffees and everything. Starbucks, however at least in the U S they'll like have the vials, not vials, the crafts of milk outside. And you get to like pour into the coffee and see it like, you know, pour down to the bottom and then float up in those incredible wisps. But anyways, that was, I, it was a, all of which is to say is that it was a wonderful evocation. I appreciate it. Um, Clay, I do not have any more questions for you. Um, this was a lovely conversation. I really enjoyed your insight. Why don't you take a moment, tell folks watching, listening, what you got going on, where they can get yeah, at you, um, what you'd like them to know. Yeah, so we're almost a year into building this subjective project. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at SubjectiveNYC. Um, check out some of the shows we've done. Check out some of the artists. Um, and yeah, if you're a collector interested in um, being involved with an artist uh, or with a space, putting on artists and trying to build, um, feel free to reach out. Um, we're always just trying to form new relationships and bring more opportunities for the talented people that make this place special. So um, other than that, as for my own art, I'll plug a little um, showing at Art Basel next week in Miami. So I'm going to be minting my own work for the first time in like a year. I haven't really been focused on that with all the curation, but check it out if you want and come see me at the Beyond Basel and, and Scope if you're in Miami. Rock and roll. Clay, thank you so much. Um, this has been another episode of Mocha Live. If you liked what you heard, we would love if you would give us a 
shout out or a five star rating or a subscribe or a follow on Spotify or Apple. Uh, maybe this is like a little early announcement. We'll have more information tomorrow, but all of these podcasts are now, or at least our archives are now live on Zora to be minted and collected. So we'd love if you would check out our collection on Zora.co. It should be up on the homepage tomorrow. And by the time you all hearing this on Friday, we should be like rip roaring ready to go. This will be the first like new podcast to like go up on Zora. So we're super excited about that. Shout out Zora. Um, shout out Yuri at Zora from making that happen. Uh, we have a newsletter as well. We'd love for you to subscribe to it. Substack. I'm sorry. Museum of crypto.substack.com. Clay, I'm sorry. I got to do the whole plug. We are Clay Devlin's most listened to podcast of the year. Maybe we can be your most listened to podcast next year. I had a lot of fun, Clay. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you all for being here and we'll see y'all real soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Max. It was a pleasure. Yeah, take care, everybody. Adios. This podcast was edited and produced by me, Max Cohen. A big thank you to Clay Devlin for being my guest this week. A big thanks to Julian Brangold for composing our intro music. And a big thanks to Dayfox for composing our cold open theme. Most of all, however, a big thanks to all of you for listening. We hope to see you again soon on another Mocha podcast. Bye-bye.